Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. We wanted to take a moment to thank you for your continued support over the years. It's hard to believe that we've been having weekly in-depth discussions about movies since 2011. That's right, 12 years and counting. Producing this show is a labor of love for us, but it does require a lot of time and effort each week. If you enjoy our podcast and would love to help keep it going, there are some easy ways you can show your support. One is by using our Originals page to shop for the original source material that movies we've discussed were based on. That's right. In season one alone, we covered 13 films adapted from books or plays, from Charlie Kaufman's adaptation to David Fincher adaptations like Fight Club. In season two, we covered even more, like Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes and The African Queen from our series about legendary cinematographer Jack Cardiff. We can't forget about the four Jason Bourne movies we talked about. Love those movies. Well, the original trilogy, at least. <laughs> for our Richard D. Zanuck series, we did Jaws, Rush, Big Fish, and more. And for our horror series, we talked about John Carpenter's The Thing, which was adapted from Who Goes There? We did our first great car chase series with movies like Bullet, The French Connection, and Drive. And for the holidays, we did Preston Sturgis's Christmas in July. We had a great John Huston series with adaptations like The Maltese Falcon and The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And for our baseball series, Moneyball with Brad Pitt. Have I told you lately how much I love that movie? Uh, yeah, I think you have. Plus, our Magician series and Heist film series had adaptations as well. Tons of page-to-screen gems. Listeners can find the details and links to the original material at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, or movie you buy through our links helps support the show, and it's no extra cost to you. So dive in and get your next read today. Thenextreel.com slash originals has all the films adapted from other sources that not only we have covered, but all of the shows on the Next Real family of podcasts. Check it out and get reading. Support the show and build your reading list. It's a win-win. Head to thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Who is it? Larry the Cable Guy? <laughs> Get her done. Is it Larry the Cable Guy who says that? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. I believe, and they, I believe they are immortal. Get actually. her done. I think, I think it's get.
origin. To be accurate, it's git. It is in the, it is git, it's hyphenated. Uh, git hyphen er hyphen done. It's a statement of boisterous completion or encouraging another person to get something done, completed, or finished. It can be used at random times, such as traffic jams, sports events, and, oh yes, your favorite, I'm sure, NASCAR. Its origins are thought by some to be sexual, which it does work well in that context, but not limited to that. In the last two years, Get Her Done has debuted in many social and ethnic settings, thus expanding its borders beyond rednectum to actual cultural diversity. I don't think Larry the Cable Guy wrote that definition. No, no, (laughs) he he didn't. Uh, Actually, the second definition is uh, Get Her Done. The expression that Larry the Cable Cable Guy uses means to uh, to, uh, engage in uh, coitus, to get drunk, to get ripped, etc. It basically works for anything of that sort. Get her done. Yep. (laughs) Get her done. And that's uh, welcome to the next reel. (laughs) I'm Pete Wright, and that over there is Andy Nelson. Hello, Andrew. Chortling away. Chortling away. Uh, I uh, Can I tell you something? So, you know, I meet with my uh, trainer. Mm. I have a trainer, Jamie. Shout out to Jamie. I don't, uh, it's it's tough having this kind of relationship with Jamie because he uh, I, he sees me at my worst. And when I'm at my worst, I don't like him very much. But I have a feeling he's a, he's a fairly uh, congenial guy. He's a nice guy. And he actually, um, you know, I was uh, with him uh, getting, getting trained uh, uh, earlier this week. And he said he'd actually uh, had listened to the show. Wow. Which is a little bit strange. Is that uh, sort of the uh, 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 worlds collide kind of a thing? Kind of <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but, you know, at one point he said he, uh, he said he agreed with me on something. But he didn't actually listen to the whole show. You know, he's talking about Star Trek. He said he actually, he, he actually agreed with our assessment of Star Trek, which is good because he's a nerd. The first thing he taught me ever in, in my meetings with him, uh, he, he taught me, had to teach me how to run because I am that deficient. Physically, <laughs> that he had to teach me how to run, and the, what he said with this, I knew it was meant to be. I knew that that this complete jerk for what he does to me each week would be important to me in my life. He said, uh, he's, he's, he watches me walk around the track, and he says, uh, "Okay, so you know when old Spock is talking to young Spock or a young uh, Scotty uh-huh. and giving him the uh, the uh, equation." for transwarp beaming and he says imagine you know space is the thing that's moving mm-hmm. that's what i want you to think about when you're running wow and i knew right then i it, it made a connection i i a i've never run the same way b i've never seen star trek in the same light either because now it's it was that impactful of a moment. the big question is have you have you gone into <laughs> hyperspace when you run I think that I actually I'm not sure because so many <laughs> so many of my weekly sessions with Jamie I don't actually remember I just have blacked out. So for all you know, we're talking ten years ago. We are. We do well. We go for the three day burn, right? If he says if you can still use your body after three days, then I haven't done my job right. So I I need to. I, he has to hurt to the point where I can't move or drive or anything for three days. So nice. and that's that's where we are. We met on Monday, and I'm just barely standing up right now. Wow. Um, but he also said something else of our movie that I told him the movie we were doing tonight. And he said something that I thought was amusing and spot on. And I'm going to share it with you now. You know, this Paul Giamatti is in this mm. movie we're talking about tonight. That's right. And he says of Paul Giamatti, <laughs> I thought it was quite astute. Jamie says, he says, uh, you know, when actors, they go to this uh, acting school and I'm sure this comes up at some point where they have to go to a class and they have to be, uh, they have to practice, uh, eat, you know, delivering their lines while they're eating. I'll bet uh. Paul Giamatti was really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> right? You go, Giamatti, with uh, your mouth like, full. <laughs> that's like a totally different kind of acting school. Right. <laughs> it's, it's like, remember in uh, Vegas va- Vacation? Right, they're they're trying to make their money back, and they don't have enough, so they go to like the really really chintzy <laughs> casino, where instead of you know, roulette and poker and blackjack, they're playing you know what number is in my head, <laughs> you know, and 
<laughs> you're just uh, you're the most inane game. That's, that's, that's exactly it. That's uh, Paul Giamatti's acting school. He's that in good. In the best way. In the, in the best the... way. Paul, now you're going to put 18 marbles in your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> go, Horatio, go. <laughs> Uh, you can find out more about us at thenextreel.com. We invite you to go there and uh, check out the uh, site, listen to past shows. We've got lots of them. We're, uh, what are we on, 84, episode 84 this week? Is that true? It uh, uh, is very true. We're very excited about episode 84 of our continuing uh, series of uh, movies about magic made in 2006. <laughs> yeah, it's it's morphed a little bit as yeah. we've gotten uh, yeah. from last week to this week. We've uh... Uh, we've, we've, changed, we've modified some things, but it's still very exciting. And uh, and so uh, we invite you to head over there. You can head over to Facebook.com slash The Next Reel or Twitter.com slash The Next Reel, and you can keep up with us uh, and movie talk over there. But Facebook is really where things are, where, where any discussion is happening. And, and uh, we've got uh, the good and kindly, uh, you may know him from uh, hit podcasts such as The Next Reel, The Film Board, uh, Steve Sarmento <laughs> posts regularly uh, uh, with us over on uh, on Facebook. and. Uh, so we uh, and, deeply thank him for joining the club over there. And I believe while we're talking about that, we should mention that there is a film board conversation this Saturday night. How excited are you about this uh, movie for the weekend? I, I feel like I'm more excited about this movie than I have been about uh, a good number of our past yeah. uh, movies. Not to say that, that I haven't been excited, but this one just, there's something about it that just really, really gets me excited. I know, and I really worry about that. I, I do too. <laughs> Absolutely, because every single movie we've done has been mediocre to lame yeah. that we've gotten together as a group. And so this weekend, uh, the film board coming up Saturday night, we're going to be doing Now You See Me, the new Mark Zuckerberg film. And um, we're very excited to to do this. This is a, uh, a well, magic heist movie. Yeah, and that, it's our crossover yes. from our magician series to our heist series. Yes. So it's very exciting. Uh, very appropriately that they um, they mixed they they put this movie right in the middle of our series Al- series almost, is. almost yeah it's it's not quite perfectly in the yeah. middle of the two but could it's be better still, yeah they, we could have worked yeah. that out thanks a lot uh, whoever's releasing now you see me <laughs> Zuckerberg yeah. uh, okay so that is uh, I think what did I miss anything I've been all over the place iTunes oh yeah you should go there you can subscribe to the show by far. You can go to thenextreel.com. You can find the RSS feed and and uh, a link to the iTunes uh, podcast directory. So whatever your podcast uh, tool of choice, I'm a Downcast user, for example. What are you? Are you using Downcast? I am using Downcast now. You can. It, it's a it's a, a handy tool. Big shout out to Downcast. You can if you're a Downcast user, if you are a uh, Apple's podcast user, if you uh, just uh, subscribe in iTunes, you can find the show any number of different ways. Uh, from the website. But if you go to the iTunes store and you uh, happen to search for us and visit our iTunes page, leave us a kindly review uh, and uh, drop uh, five of your spare stars. That helps other people discover the show, and it's a a very nice thing to do. It will deliver unto you great karma. Absolutely. It's a karma machine in there. It's a karma machine. It's just going like gangbusters. Yep. Get her done. Get her done. Um. So okay, so shall we uh, shall we talk trailers? Absolutely. I'm pretty uh, well. You do yours first because it's. Uh... I, I'm pretty excited about it. I know you're not. I know you are not quite as excited, but it's it's a, a film directed by a buddy of mine here in Phoenix uh, called Speak No Evil. It actually just premiered this past weekend here. <laughs> That's in an Phoenix. ironic title. <laughs> Considering how uh, evil the it film is, yeah, it doesn't look sweet. It's it, it's it's a horror film. Rose uh, Rose directed it. He's a uh, uh, great director. He, he really loves playing around in the horror genre and does some uh, some pretty creepy stuff. He uh, they premiered it this past weekend, and then it played again at the Phoenix Comic Con this weekend, which uh, was a, a wonderful time. And they are slowly going to be doing a few more premieres around the country, and then they are going to be opening it on a new distribution site that they have that they're starting up called uh, MindPlate.tv. And so people can go to MindPlate and watch short films. They can watch uh, features like this, all sorts of stuff. I think it's going to be premiering on MindPlate shortly after its uh, its final uh, release. Uh, let's see, it's premiering 
this Thursday night. Uh, so actually, uh, it will have passed in LA, I guess. And then it's going to be up in Detroit Friday, June 7th. And then it'll be at the Falls Horror Fest in Niagara Falls. If any of you are around there, June 8th and 9th, it's going to be playing there. And uh, and then shortly after that, it'll be up on Mindplate. And you can uh, watch it right there on, uh, you can download it and watch it on their screen or whatever you want to do. That's very cool. It's, yeah, it's, not, a, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it looks uh, pretty scary. It's a creepy trailer. Uh, yeah. Talking to uh, Rose, it's a, um, and, and his lovely wife, Candace, who uh, produced it with him. They say it's not a just a, like a, a slasher horror film. I mean, there's definitely blood in the trailer. It really plays that up. But they say it's a lot more of the kind of older school, um, almost a PG-13 type of horror that's really more about the jumps and making you just jump out of your seat. So, you know, I'm maybe, it's, gonna, good, maybe it's a good date say, movie. That's not the trailer. That, 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 I that, said you, the trailer. What you just described <laughs> is not that trailer. That's right. That what what I just saw was full on like paranormal activity. uh, What was the Evil Dead? Right. That was there was a lot of blood and mouth blood, an enormous amount of mouth blood and (laughs) chewing blood. It is a little creepy. It's it's about a a single mother who's trying to uh, fight to protect her daughter from some demonically possessed children and uh, a town gone mad. Looks pretty creepy. Yeah, okay. All right. No, I, you know, I, to each his own. I'm not <laughs> what I have, I've become less of that guy. That's And that's okay. And so that's why my trailer this week is absolutely not a horror movie. In fact, <laughs> it's everything <laughs> absolutely but. Absolutely not. It is everything <laughs> but. Uh, we're ta- I'm talking about About Time, which is a uh, Richard Curtis Written and directed, uh, uh, it's a it's a wee bit of a British uh, love story in the vein of, uh, you know, Notting Hill, Love Actually, uh, and uh, appropriately so because Richard Curtis also wrote and directed those films. So if pretty much if you uh, if if you're into, uh, well, he did Pirate Radio too. That was good. Did he wrote? Uh, he's he's been mostly a writer. So this is kind of a, a transition. He wrote all the Bridget Jones things. Anyhow, this is uh, about time. Is uh, uh, is it's fantastic. It's about a uh, young British guy, Tim, who discovers that his family secret is that he can, if he goes into a closet and clench his fi- clenches his fist real, real tight, he can travel through time. And so it's one of these wonderful uh, romantic comedies uh, in which the protagonist can keep redoing stuff that he screws up. And I find these stories absolutely charming, even though they feel like they came right out of the bottom of a cereal box. I love them, and uh, that's my dirty secret of the of the week. You know what I have to say is what? it's about time that Rachel McAdams got herself in another time-traveling romance movie. <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything about that. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. She's, uh, you know that Rachel McAdams? I like her, too. Yeah, she's pretty fantastic. She's pretty fantastic. Uh yeah you know it's funny she was in did you see uh the lucky ones? I didn't. That was another uh, Neil Berger, one of the few other Neil Berger films that we right. uh from that we're going to be talking about one of his tonight. And so uh, yeah she was great in that too. Uh anyway, I'm very much looking forward to this. Comes out uh, November eighth, two thousand thirteen. It is a comedy drama sci fi, mm-hmm. a rom com time rom time com. <laughs> no, there's nothing. nothing uh, you tried. I did. No close. Effort. Yeah. Uh, so those are the trailers for the week. You can check out the trailers and uh, uh, over on the uh, uh, in the show notes at uh, thenextreel dot com slash tnr slash the illusionist, the dash illusionist. Actually, so just head over right. to the next reel. You can catch up with uh, the detailed show notes and links to everything we talk about in this episode. Uh, I should add, next week, or last week, we talked about a new list, our favorite movies about people on their own. <laughs> right, yeah. How right? is that coming along? Well, I started I, I started uh, the list, and you'll see in our uh, Evernote uh, note, I started a list, and I've got, uh, I got the uh, Castaway, uh-huh. I Am Legend, There you go. The Wall, which we talked about last week. Haven't even right, seen right. it yet, but it's on the list. Uh, I put uh, Into the Wild on there. Okay. Uh, Life of Pi. 
kind uh, of alone. Kind, yeah, you know, <laughs> I guess. A... <laughs> yeah, without spoiling anything. Right, just... exactly. I put uh, "Touching the Void" on there, uh, uh-huh. and uh, "Open Water." Ooh. Right. Uh, but what was the? Uh, there was one other you mentioned that uh, that I had not put on there yet, and I can't remember what it was. Was it uh, the 127 hours or? Well, that's a good one, but that's not what I said. I don't know. <laughs> oh. So I'll add 127 yeah, hours two on that one. Okay, so we'll get. I'll get that list up uh, in the list section uh, of the uh, site, so you can join. But if anybody has any other uh, suggestions of great movies about uh, uh, people stranded or otherwise shipwrecked on their own, I'm not. I and no, I'm not adding Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> uh, then please uh, shoot them our way. All right, let's talk about this movie. Absolutely. The Illusionist. This was a strangely popular year for stage magician films. What is up with that? I don't know. I mean, I know that there's these weird cycles in Hollywood where they end up having two of the virtually same film come out at the same time, uh, like Deep Impact and Armageddon. Or this year, we've got Olympus uh, Has Fallen and White House Down. It's it's strange. It's it's these weird little things in Hollywood, and uh, you know, oddly enough, there were three in two thousand six. So it'll three be two thousand six. Uh, and you know what I find most interesting about that that uh, that here we are having three movies about stage magicians that end up being remarkably different movies. Yeah, and that surprised me. My memory of The Illusionist was that it was a uh, it ended up being a knockoff of The Prestige because I I really liked The Prestige as much as I did. Watching this movie again this week, uh, I sort of rediscovered uh, a love for it, but not the same things that I remember loving about it. Um, it happened in roughly the same time period, uh, yeah. you know, uh, uh, kind of the same world that they they, they try to capture uh, in in spite of being different countries. Um, and, and yet, uh, different, it, it's a movie about different things and I found it, uh, fascinating. Yeah. It was a very interesting, uh, difference between the two films, uh, that I think worked in their favor. And that's, you know, talking about films that they feel like Hollywood, you know, somebody left one on the photocopier and somebody, uh, uh took it and went to make their own version of that, right. like the ones that I just mentioned. These ones feel like, yes, they all deal in the world of of stage magicians, but they definitely feel different. You know, The Prestige was very much a film about this rivalry between between these two men, uh, magicians, and their journey to be the best that there was. This one is really just kind of a love story about a man who uh, finds his true love when he's young, and even though they're separated by, by uh, you know, social class, they... Uh, as they when they're older we come back to them later in life they he finds a way to bring them together it's it's very much more of a love story a kind of a mystery love story than the prestige was that's exactly what i was uh, what i was thinking the prestige in in so far as it is more more sort of hardcore rooted in magic the magic in the illusionist ends up being a setting um more than anything else, uh, yeah. it, although the the magic in the movies is uh, in the movie is uh, fascinating. The more you kind of dig into it, and I uh, we'll talk more about kind of the use of CG versus the use of practical magic in the right. in the film. Um, they made some interesting choices. I I don't necessarily think to the credit of the film, but um, uh, in any case, what what stands out to you in this film as uh, uh, as its as its real strengths uh, as you're watching it again. This is uh, we we should say this was the this was the magic movie, uh, written and directed by Neil Berger based on the book, uh, based on the short story Eisenheim the Illusionist the Illusionist, <laughs> uh, uh, written by Stephen Milhauser, uh, and it's in the collection. It's in a collection of short stories that Barnum. Uh, well, the, the link's Barnum, in the show notes. The, Bar- the Barnum Museum. Barnum Museum. Yeah. yeah. And it's on our on our website. As it's well. on the website as well. Uh, Edward Norton, Paul Giamatti, Jessica Biel, uh, and um, uh, oh my goodness, the Rufus Sewell. Rufus Sewell. Yes. Uh, so those are the key players. What what stands out to you as as uh, particularly strong in this film? You know, first of all, I think the the film that or the thing that struck me the most rewatching this film was the incredibly gorgeous cinematography by dick pope it's just a sumptuous film it feels just 
I mean, there's something almost tangible about the way the film looks. I just, I couldn't get enough of looking at this film in every frame. It was just like a work of art. Okay, Dick okay, well, you gotta, you gotta talk more about that. What exactly was it about every frame that you found really appealing? Because I'm, I am very torn on this point. Hmm, interesting. You know, I, it was, it was the, uh, the, the palette that they chose to use, the color palette that, gave it this feel that it almost had kind of this earthy sepia quality to it that just felt like it was a distant memory. And not just that, but also the way that they used um, irises throughout the film and uh, just old film school techniques that really just, in a way, it reminded me a lot of um, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. The way that they used these these kind of old school tools to really enhance the cinematography and and give it this, I, I, I want to say almost an otherworldliness, but it's really just makes me feel like I really kind of stepped back and I'm watching these memories of the past. And I think that's why I am so drawn to the cinematography in this film. I, I, I'll tell you why I'm torn, and then I, you can get back to your, to your uh, review here. I, I am torn because I think they, for me, they went sort of a bridge too far on the, um, on the uh, kind of film decay look uh, yeah. of it. You know, when you, it, it feels to me very much like I just walked into a, a, a tent uh, for a, uh, for, you know, for a silent film review, you know, I mean, it was, it's that every frame, I, I totally agree with you. I think the, the sepia kind of toning is luscious. Uh, I think it does a great thing for the film in general, but then they end up doing this weird sort of, uh, you know, the, the iris sort of vignetting uh, mm -hmm. that shows up uh, more intensely, I think in the flashback, uh, right. segments than in, but it's, it's throughout the entire film is this, is this vignetting that is to me, it, it comes off as dizzying. And I, I think that's, that's uh, a choice that I think dis it's a distracting choice from, from a consistent watch of the film. I, I had trouble with that, hmm. but anyway, so go ahead. No, I, I mean, I, it's, and I can, I can see how one would see that it's, it is very consistent and it's in your face. You know, I've always been a fan of filmmakers who aren't afraid to really put the filmmaking techniques in your face, much like uh, watching hot fuzz or, uh, any of those, uh, sorts of films where it's just like the, the camera moves, the way that everything is alive as far as the movement within the camera, the way that the actors and the camera relationships are, it all feels very live and it's constantly reminding me that I'm watching a movie, but there's something really invigorating about that that gives the film a different energy that I, I never find distracting. And in this film, I, I definitely was aware that it was happening, that the the uh, irising was going on and the vignetting and and just kind of this, almost a, this this technique used to make it look like old film. Um, I, I never found it distracting. I It was one of those techniques that I acknowledged and I was very excited that they were doing it and I just kind of saw past it and was just more and more excited every time it happened. All right. I mean, yeah. I can, I, I, I absolutely see that. And like I said, for me, it was just a little bit far. Sure. I, I think, what were the, what were the, uh, the Wyatt Earp movies? There was Wyatt Earp and what was the other one? Tombstone. Tombstone. I mean, I, I think one of those had this uh, similar effect. Maybe it was Wyatt Earp. And it was just, it was that same thing. It was like, this is just too old-fashioned for me. Yeah. Uh, uh, like, I, I did found myself thinking there's something wrong with the, with the display. Like, I'm getting burn-in in the corners or something. It was, it was too much. So, anyhow. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, it's definitely a choice that the director chose to make with his film that some people are going to like, some people aren't going to like. And I completely acknowledge that it's, uh, it, it, again, it's something that works for me. So, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's a, anytime any director makes choices like that with their film where they're really putting their technique right out in front for you to notice, I mean, it, it could uh, be something that backfires for them. Yeah. And so they have to acknowledge that when they're making the, those choices. Truth. So, Truth. Uh, and, you know, Dick Pope was nominated for an Oscar for his work in this. He lost out to Guillermo Navarro, who won for Pan's Labyrinth, one of your all-time favorites. You're doing that sarcasm thing again. It looks great. <laughs> yeah, I did. It looked great, except for the content. <laughs> Dick Pope, we've talked about before, he did Dark City. Yes. No, that's true. That is a uh, uh, very 
No, you're right. That's a high points for me. Yeah. yeah. And that you know, interesting comparison too, because Dark City is another one that has uh, that that, as you say, it sort of wears its cinematography on its sleeves. Um, uh, lots of of kind of filmmaking techniques very much on display. Yeah. Uh, in that film. And perhaps it works well in a film like that because of the sci-fi nature of the mm-hmm. film. It may come across as less in your face, whereas a period piece, it is something that may come across as a little distracting. Now, again, maybe it worked for me uh, because of this feel of the old techniques that they were applying to the film. Um, that worked really well, as opposed to if it was Edgar Wright who was directing yes. this and using his techniques that he uses in his films, that may have been distracting to a point where I wasn't very happy. <laughs> we don't want to make you unhappy. No, we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. Okay. Uh, so let's. Uh, what else do you love about this film? Keep going. I, I think I love, I, I love the love story. I love the mystery of it. The, watching it a second time, I did find I enjoyed it a little less than I did the first time. I actually knew... Uh, I knew there was a twist. I couldn't quite remember what the full twist was, but I I kind of knew it was there, and I was trying to remember the pieces that were going to fall in place for me. Um, when I got to the end, I found myself a little uh, a little disappointed, and I'll talk about the specifics of that maybe a little later. Um, but you know, I think what I did love about it was this love story and this connection between Edward Norton's character Eisenheim, the magician. And, and Jessica Biel's character as uh, Duchess Sophie von Teschen. I, there's something I really uh, connected to with that, and I found it really touching and and uh, and believable. And I, I that for me is what really made it a strong film. I uh, I agree with you, and it's uh, you know as much as I love Edward Norton. Uh, generally, and you know, we've talked about uh, Fight Club is one of our very, very favorites, and uh, I, I love his performance in that film. I think he's very strong. We've talked obviously about the Born, um, the Born Legacy, Legacy, <laughs> the Born Triumphant, <laughs> uh, and, and his role there. And, and I think you were higher on him uh, in that film than I was, but still very strong. Um, the The thing about him in this movie is, I, I, I think he's the weakest point in this film. Um, I, I certainly don't buy the accent. I find it distracting and, and inconsistent. Um, and uh, I think he gets in the way of the people that I really want to watch, which are the other three. Uh, Paul mm-hmm. Giamatti, to me, this is a Paul Giamatti film. I mean, I I am most interested and intrigued by his dogged uh, detective uh, uh, persona. And uh, I think he has uh, absolutely, even when his mouth notoriously good when his mouth is full uh <laughs> he is he has the most consistent performance throughout the most interesting uh and is balanced perfectly by uh, rufus sewell who is a terrific um you know maniacal uh tyrant uh, tyrant yeah i mean he's he is terrific and and that his he he brings this fantastic bipolar uh kind of reactionary um uh, approach to his um to his dealings with eisenheim and and um uh, you know the the their kind of emotional duel when he invites uh eisenheim to uh, to come to his home and do a private show to all of the best minds mm-hmm. uh, you know you offer us tricks, I offer you enlightenment, which is the most noble, you know, which is more yeah. noble. I mean, that's just a fantastic sequence uh, where you really get to see uh, him uh, spin out of control in his head. And and yeah. he portrays that absolutely beautifully. And uh, it, it is a performance, I think, that is unmatched by uh, Norton's Eisenheim in this film. Um, that's not to say that it's not a good performance i just find it you know sort of the distracting from the better ones um jessica beal isn't actually in the film all that much no she's not but uh you know i would i would uh i would engage in in trickery for for jessica in this film <laughs> yes absolutely she's she's a, she's a delight let's just leave it at that. she she is she definitely is you know i i can i've agree seen with... stealth a thousand times what <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, you were agreeing. You you were agreeing with me. Let's go back to that. 
<laughs> you what? I I do agree with you. I um as much as I do enjoy the love story in this film because that to me I really connect to and maybe it's just the the battle of, you know, the socioeconomic class between the two as they as they grow up and they they still want this love that is torn by this this awful tyrant. But I do agree with you. I, I, I guess I don't really have a problem with Edward Norton in this film. He works, uh, he works fine for me. It, it, he's never really bothered me. Um, his accent, I've always looked past. Paul Giamatti, you're right, though, is stellar in this film, as is Rufus Sewell. I find both of them very engaging to watch. I love seeing the scenes uh, between those two. I love the interesting uh, conversation that... Uh, Giamatti's character, Inspector Uhl, has with Eisenheim about the nature of his relationship with uh, the Crown Prince Leopold, played by Rufus Sewell, and how even though it may seem like they're friends, they're really not because there is this um, economic gulf between the two of them. And as as close as Inspector Uhl is to the Crown Prince, he's never going to be at that level. And that was just a very his his point about that that he brought up a number of times. I really enjoyed. I, I enjoyed the way that Paul Giamatti played that. As a guy who struggled with this kind of economic difference between him and his employer, um, but was happily going along with it, uh, you know, as long as as long as he was getting something out of it, and you know, I mean, becoming maybe the the you know, what was it, the chief of police, and eventually right. the mayor. I mean, those are great promises. To well, have. and and to your point, I mean, those sequences, the sequence, uh, any of the sequences between uh, Giamatti and Sewell, uh, and the sequences, uh, the sequence that you're speaking of, when he, the the I am the son of a butcher speech, uh-huh. uh, I, I think were were really expertly crafted. I mean, that was that was uh, there was just a wonderful bit of screenwriting in there from Neil Berger, where we actually you you see that sort of. Um, uh, the dialogue turnabout here, when when you know that that um, uh, Eisenheim is trying to get him to say, you know, you're you're under the wing of royalty, uh, and uh, and and there's there's this sort of trickery that he's trying to pull, this verbal trickery, and yet uh, I- Inspector Uhl, uh doesn't fall for it. It's like this this is a sequence in which, knowing that otherwise he is absolutely intellectually uh, overpowered by. Um, you know, by Eisenheim and as as the magician, uh, you know, you you don't get to pay, play social politics with uh, Inspector Uhl. He always knows where he came from, and, right? And there's there is no trick there. Uh, and I thought that was just such a powerful sequence. I mean, I ju- you could just watch that again and again. Um, that and the uh, you know, as the the film plays out, the uh, the climax of the film when when Inspector Uhl confronts. Um, and and ultimately attempts to arrest the crown prince. Right. Um, uh, that sequence is equally powerful. Uh, just language, I, I thought was uh, to, for me. Those were two absolute highlights. Absolutely, absolutely. Even though <laughs> this is this is going to be my my point. Uh, even though um, um, was I interrupting that whole my whole monologue was interrupting a point. No, no, of no, yours? no, no. Absolutely not. No, oh, I would feel point, bad about that. No, no, no. My point's going back to something I was going to say about the ending of the film, which uh, is, is something that bothered me more the second time watching it than it did the first time. As the inspector uh, of this, of this uh, city that they're living in, or villa, or whatever it is, I, I, when we get to the end and the big reveal happens, which, uh, you know, spoiler alert, even though it's, uh, you know, seven years old, we see how Eisenheim and Sophie had really planned this whole escape for quite a while. And they had figured out a way to essentially um, follow through on something that Uhl had said earlier about how the only way that the crown prince will let uh, you to, or will stop chasing you two is if you're both dead. And so he creates this whole elaborate trick that almost makes it seem like they're both dead. I mean, Sophie for sure, Eisenheim completely has disappeared. And then they essentially frame the crown prince for her murder, even though she's not dead. Now, the crown prince was a bastard. He was abusive. He was he was plotting to take over his father's throne. I mean, he's not a nice guy. But And so, you know, in a way, I guess I'm happy to see him go. But at the same time, I'm like... Yeah, but now the chief inspector is like laughing at the joy of this trick pulled by Eisenheim over everybody. 
while this crown prince was wrongfully framed for murder and killed himself. Well, maybe now, I'm making too big of a deal. Out okay, of it. no, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and <laughs> I'm gonna try and 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 uh, ease your burden. Okay, thank you, because it is a burden. He wasn't laughing until, or uh, it, he wasn't laughing. Ool, 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 you at the train station when he catches on what, to what's going on. You're right. Talking. That was, am I wrong? Because this is, this is another one of those films where the editing is, is you know, really important, uh, editing from Naomi Garrity. Uh, yeah, it, it, it becomes a very um, uh, usual suspects type it, of montage at the end. Very much so. Now, was the laughing at the train station, was, are, you, are you dead sure that it was after the assassination? Or the, after the, uh, the uh, not assassination, after the suicide? Yeah, I he thought it was right to before. The train station. No, because that's like right at the end of the film, right? He follows him to the train station, has his giggles as he realizes what happened. Right, and, and then he goes and, to and see then, the prince. No, and then we cut to the two of them at their cabin up in the mountains. And that's the end of the film. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I may give that to you, but here's the thing: that this is this is why I, I buy it. Because throughout the film, we have these cues that Walter Uhl is on the side of Eisenheim, right? Sure. He says a number of times throughout the film, I am not completely corrupt. That's why I'm telling you, please don't do what you're doing, right? I am here as, a, you know, their first meeting together in the back of, uh, backstage at the theater, their first meeting when he does the trick with the hand against the forehead— the the subtext in that film to me is so clear that they are on the same side and Paul Giamatti is simply trying to, or Ool's role in this, is simply trying to grease the skids between the performer and a very finicky audience member, right? But ultimately, his allegiance, Ool's allegiance, is with the proletariat, right? It's with the, the people of, of, it's with the people, it's with the sons of the butchers. And even, so, even even the murderers, <laughs> or the the ones who 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 frame people for murder. No, I you know I don't I, I don't think so because I don't think that uh, uh, I don't think that you know my impression is that Ool didn't uh, was fine with him killing himself with uh, the the I don't think he had any allegiance beyond uh, no. riding the coattails for political gain. Right? I mean, he was not he he was no dummy. Well, he was happy to do that uh, yeah. as long as as long as Leopold, the crown prince, wasn't a horribly awful guy. And he was a horribly awful guy. And yeah, but he wasn't a murderer. And that's what I But I'm he was a murderer. We already knew that he had uh, that the you know the rumors were already uh, swirling that he had killed yeah. others in the past and and dropped their bodies off to prevent them from from coming a, clean. I think a body. Right. I think it, yeah, I think he was a mass murderer and it was many <laughs> many bodies. I think he was Jack the Ripper. I think he was he was <laughs> <laughs> you see my point though. I feel like I guess my argument I, is I think they made enough of a case. Uh, well, they they did to me. Yes, that it, they, it doesn't make Ool because when you the way you put it makes Ool the sociopath, and I don't think he was. No, I'm just saying it's you know for the police chief to it, it's like he should be realizing that the wool was pulled over his eyes. Yes, the wool was pulled over Ool's eyes. <laughs> <laughs> was he, it the wool over the, wool? It was the wool wool. It was the wool wool <laughs> wool. And, and instead of just giggling at the train station about it, he should have gone, that son of a monkey, I am going to go arrest him. Yes. Anyway, well, I'm oh, making, okay. I'm I mean, making too big of a deal of it. It really is a minor plot point. <laughs> but it was just one of those things that I'm just like, well, come on. I know... The crown prince was a horrible guy, but now these two are framing him for murder just so they can get away and be together. And the inspector is totally okay with it. Well, because the inspector, like, there was no—it's not as though they—I mean, I see your point. They did frame him for murder in order to get away, right? That, and that's he right. he killed himself because he was framed for but murder. But he did not kill himself. But there was no way for anyone else to know that he was going to kill himself. It's not like they no. made him kill himself. Right. He he was he was not stable. So here's a question for you. Completely speculative. Would if the crown prince <laughs> did not kill himself, 
We're like, it's just some strange tangent here. If the crown prince had not killed himself, but Inspector Ull had instead arrested him, and then he went to the train station and realized that Eisenheim and Sophie had pulled the Ull wool over his eyes, <laughs> would he then have freed the crown prince? Because he wasn't actually guilty. Well, that is a great question. <laughs> Man, I think he probably would have, because he also was not... Uh, you know, it, it's okay that he doesn't have to feel bad about the fact that this tyrant has actually killed himself. Right. Uh, and even when he kills himself, you, you notice his position over the body is is he's kind of relaxed. And it's like that, oh, well, the crown prince has killed himself. Right. Oh, shucks. Oh, well. <laughs> Who's next? But but I, I, also don't, I also think that he was, you know, he was a functionary, right? And that means his role was to was to observe and apply the law accordingly, right? Sure. And so I think if he observes that there that the facts are different than than those that he is he was otherwise made aware, he would have freed the crown prince. Yeah. And now whether or not he would have as doggedly pursued Eisenheim and Sophie, I think that's a different question. I yeah, I don't think he would. I don't think he would have. He is the son of a butcher. He's gotta be true to his character. Oh, that was good. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, so uh, then, and this is, you know, I don't know. Here I'm looking at the poster. And this, I think the poster is so deceiving since the movie for me is really about Paul Giamatti. And in fact, there are no crystal balls in this thing at all. What's Edward Norton doing <laughs> holding a crystal ball all lit up? Uh, what do you think of the magic? Yeah, I like the magic. I think it's fun. It's one of those magic films where... You know, I'm always torn watching films with people performing magic going, okay, are they really performing magic? And, you know, they, the a magician uh, actually trained the actor how to do it? Or is it pure digital fabrication on the part of the filmmakers so that they can make something look really super cool? To me, and I know you've done more research than I have on this, but to me, it seems like most of these tricks in this film are CG. It does seem that way. Yes. And this is where I am frustrated by this film. Okay. Uh, so the ball tricks, uh, the throwing of the orange tricks, uh, you know, the, any of the hand tricks, those tricks, uh, they, uh, according to, you know, what I have read on multiple sources, that there were, there were three uh, key uh, uh, trainers uh, of magic, uh, who stepped in? James Friedman, Ricky Jay, our friend Ricky Jay, Michael mm -hmm. Weber, and Scott Penrose. Uh, actually, so four, uh, uh, you know, magic consultants. Uh, James Friedman did the uh, uh, the vast majority of the of the hands-on uh, close-up magic training for both uh, uh, Eisenheim, the uh, the Edward Norton, and Eisenheim the Young, uh, played by Aaron Johnson, uh, and so. Uh, but, you know, those tricks and particularly Aaron Johnson, I mean, all the little ball slide of hand things that he was doing, um, those things, you know, were were apparently those were those were real practical, uh, close magic slide of hand tricks. But then yeah. you get to the more to the the uh, I would say the tentpole tricks. Right. Uh, the big one in this film in particular is uh, the orange tree. And the orange tree gets to my first frustration. Okay. So you know the orange tree. The orange tree, they bring out this this planter. And uh, after Eisenheim does this fancy speech about time and slowing time and speeding time, he cuts open an orange, a real orange, and he takes out the seed, and he places the seed into this planter and then holds his hand over the planter and out from the, you know, fresh soil sprouts a plant. And over the course of about 30 seconds, it grows into a fruiting tree. So the flowers, the blooms, orange blooms, and then real orange fruit comes off of the tree. He plucks the oranges and tosses them out into the audience for, for audience members to inspect. And then uh, from above the tree, two butterflies carrying a handkerchief that he had stolen from one of the audience members earlier on. I don't think it's called stealing. <laughs> is that is that what it was? <laughs> it's, uh, so uh, this it I, reappeared. I, it reappeared, <laughs> carried by on the wings of butterflies uh, over the tree of the audience. That's right. So this trick is uh, this particular illusion was 
um, you know, I would say what uh, up until the point that he plucks the oranges from the tree, it was a right. CG uh, trick. Yeah, that's what it looked like to me. Right. So it turns out this is a real thing, right? Did you know this? Which doesn't make any sense to me. Did which I? I guess is why it's magic. <laughs> I just dropped a magical knowledge bomb on you. This was wow. a real thing of the time, right? Ah. Wrap your head around that. I don't understand how the fruit could pop out like that. This was conceived of from uh, by a, a magician by the name of Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin. Wow, that was good. Right? He's a French magician. He uh, lived in the, uh, from 1805 to 1871. And uh, according to magicians of the late 1800s uh, and early 1900s, this guy... Uh, owned the universe because of tricks like the uh, the marvelous orange tree. Wow! And the marvelous orange tree. Here's what's so frustrating about it. So I, I there are boatloads of links on YouTube if you want to actually see this thing done. And I am not linking them in the show notes because for those of you who want to watch this trick and not see how it's done, um, I encourage you to to do that. But this is a real thing. The thing that's that uh, I I think the trick counts on is that. Um, the practical trick is with a an orange tree in a planter. Right. It it is not done from seed. Mm. Right. So what is presented on stage when Robert Houdin did it is uh, it's wheeled out on stage. It's a planter with the tree already formed. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? And then. Out like magic, these blooms start appearing on it, and then oranges start uh, like. Uh, dropping in the in this tree on stage and he plucks them and they're real oranges and then butterflies come out from behind the tree carrying the handkerchief that he had stolen earlier so there's a lot that, that i feel like we don't know uh, about the trick and i say we meaning you and me i there obviously there are a lot of people who do know and you can see the the actual mechanics of of how this this uh, the tree works if you choose to search for it. The trick is the marvelous orange tree. Uh, it was made, uh, it was developed by Robert Houdin. It was made very, uh, much more famous by uh, Houdini, who actually took his name as an homage to Robert Houdin. Oh. Right? Very interesting. Fascinating. I'm learning all sorts of interesting magic things. This today. is, I, I'm telling you, man, I have been obsessed by this stuff. And this is what's so frustrating about it. This is a movie that purports to use uh, such rigorous, uh, practical magic techniques of the time. Mm -hmm. And then they make this interesting choice to embellish them with CG in a way that I think was unnecessary. Right, right, I, and 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 I'm I don't necessarily mean embellishing CG like with maybe the butterflies or you know whatever. In this case, they embellished by bringing the, um, by bringing the the plant to grow from seed, and it makes. I, I have been really struggling with my impression of what that does to the character of Eisenheim, the illusionist, right? Mm. Um, because it could say one of two things: one, uh, that in fact Eisenheim. Uh, was conjuring something from, uh, from uh, you know, another plane, that he actually right. had power beyond practical magic. Right. Well, he did meet a man who disappeared and disappeared the tree, too, so... Yes, right? There's that. And then the, the following tricks, uh, you know, the um, uh, uh, conjuring up the ghosts, yep. those are, are well-written uh, uh, tricks about how to actually conjure using mirrors. And, and those, those things you can find as well on, on the uh, Magical YouTube. Uh, you can see how those tricks are done and wow. how Eisenheim would have done those. So there's very practical until you get that extra layer of CG trickery that takes it to the next level for the film. And, right. and so I'm, I am torn with, and, and I'll tell you, I'm torn because I don't know if I need that in this character. This character is so sort of, um, he's kind of a sidebar to the story at hand, which is the love story. I didn't need the embellishment uh, of the, the magic because the magic was fantastic on its own. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it, it does speak to what, level of trickery did we need to make the film succeed i mean it gets to a point where we're watching ghost children walk down the aisle who had apparently been outside and people had yes. seen him walking into the theater people put their hands through him he's not there it's like 
to me, the the trickery is done at such a level that the only way it makes sense is that he actually does have some power from the great beyond. Right. And I don't know if that is really the right tone to have created in this film, particularly because of the way the ending plays out, where we realize that it's all a big trick. That was, and it was a big trick. It was a big practical trick, right? Yeah. It was a trick where every step of the trick can be explained by practical means. And that's what makes the the punchline of the film, the resolution of the film, so satisfying if you've been paying attention, because you can puzzle it through, right? Mm -hmm. It's right. the usual suspect. It's where the usual suspect succeeds, is that if you watch it a thousand times, you can puzzle it through. And right. this movie, there's enough of the uh, embellishments, the CG embellishments to the magic that makes you question your own ability to puzzle it through. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, that's so that's where I feel like it's, it's sort of let down. It's the same sensation I get from those who don't like the prestige, that failure of um, expectations mm -hmm. that I feel like I'm experiencing with the illusionist. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's my whole thing. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting point that you bring up. And it's one that, you know, will make me uh, rethink my opinions of the film. I mean, even despite the, you know, the crazy uh, framing theory that I yeah. have now. But aside from that, this nature of the, the magical element of the film, is it really helping the film out or not? I don't know. I, I may like it a little less now. Well, I Thanks. think it's I, well. You're you're very welcome, uh, <laughs> with all kindnesses. I it is the thing that that you know apart from everything else because I so deeply appreciate what Rufus Sewell and Paul Giamatti and and uh, to a lesser extent, um, uh, you know the other two Yahoos in this film to to what they they deliver in this movie and what Neil Berger did with this movie I think is is uh, I think it's great. It's I, I I like this movie. I like it actually more than I did when I started watching it this week. I, my memory of it was less. That happens pretty rarely on this show, right? Yeah, right. Uh, I, I actually, I, I appreciate it more, but I find the things that trouble me about it are are different than the things that used to trouble me about it. And so, you know, now I really, I, I wonder how much we need him to be a spiritual kind of uh, sorcerer. Right. Uh, and and um, it, it comes as a disservice to this movie that has otherwise made a promise of practicality. Yeah. That's my pitch. Sounds uh, good to me. All right. So uh, you want to talk about, uh, do you have other things or should we talk about numbers and stuff? Uh, just one last thing. Uh, well, uh, um, Eddie Marsan is in this. He's an actor who I always enjoy, even though I'm always slightly creeped out by him. And I he's think the, it's because. He's uh, the manager. Yeah, he's the manager. Yeah. yeah. I think it's because of his role in Happy Go Lucky, where he had some of the worst teeth I've ever seen. <laughs> and. Uh, and I, I couldn't like him. And now I always think about his teeth when I see him. So as much as I love him, because he's been in just about everything. everything. I mean, he's, he's a very, very popular uh, actor, kind of these character actors in, in England that ends up in everything. Uh, a fantastic guy. But yeah, I always think about his bad teeth now when I see him. I don't know if that's uh, the direction I want to go with him when I see him. That's too bad because he's such a, a charming little man in this film. He is in in every film he's you, been in, except for Happy Go Lucky. You know, I I want to I want to say before we before we move on to the numbers real quick, I forgot uh, the music is done by Philip Glass. That was my next thing. Yeah. If this isn't one of the top uh, scores, certainly of of two thousand six magic films, uh, I, I, <laughs> I think it's uh, I, then I think that's a real uh, mistake. I I adore the music in this film. I do too, and and Philip Glass is one of those composers who. Uh, you know, some people say he's a minimal minimalist. He says that he is a composer of music with repetitive structures. I think that defines him really well because I don't find anything minimal about his music. I find it lush and just uh, full. Uh, can can I say maximal? <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know if I should, but uh, I'm going to say it's maximal music. It I love the structures. I love the repetitiveness of it. I love listening to his scores. And I mean, he's been score. He, you know, he's been a composer uh, on and off for a very long time. He started scoring films. I believe his first film was the uh, uh, the Katsi film, the um, Koyanaskatsi. Koyanaskatsi. Yeah. yeah, I think that was his first film. And uh, since then, he has been uh, just writing uh, a, a wide variety of projects, a number of which are films. And I find his film music just just wonderful to listen to. His score for um, Martin Scorsese's uh, um, 
I'm just blanking on the name of it right now. The um, why am I forgetting the name of it? The uh, the Dalai Lama film Kundun. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I just find that score one of his uh, most powerful scores, and the Fog of War. He did a um, new score for the 1931 film Dracula. That's a, a beautiful score. The Hours, Notes Out of Scandal, uh, just fantastic music all the time. And in this film, it really and maybe again it tie it helps me feel that lushness with the look of the film and why I'm so attached to the way this film looks, but. His lush music really feels right for the time and, and this story. And the way that the film looks paired with the music, I feel just it, it's like a uh, two great tastes that taste great together. I was just going to say all of that. <laughs> uh, I can't leave out Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line. That's right. Uh, which is one of my favorites. Uh, and uh, that's it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's talk about uh, money. Did pretty well. It did pretty well for itself. Um, this film, as one of the so far two films that we've talked about in 2006, was made for less money. It had a $16.5 million budget with production uh, or a P&A budget of 13.5. So total budget of $30 million. And domestically, it grossed almost $40 million and internationally about $44 million. So it made its money back handsomely. And as a film that's only 109 minutes long, it made more money per finished minute than The Prestige did, <laughs> which actually made more money all told. But because it's a 130-minute film, uh, The Illusionist made almost $500,000 per finished minute. The Prestige, only about $328,000 per finished minute. So uh, where, does that, where does that put those relatively? Um, on our list of films, The Illusionist is number 27 and The Prestige is number 38. Fantastic. Nothing has yet to crack Indiana Jones and the Kingdom, and the Kingdom of, the of the Crystal Skull. Crystal Skull. <laughs> Sad to say. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So uh, the film, uh, it did pretty well and it was it's worth checking out, I think, this movie. I, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very enjoyable watch. Yeah. It really is. It uh, It's very easy to get into it and to just uh, to go along with the ride the whole time. If you just, you know, don't think about the things that Pete and I brought, brought up as far as the the uh, framing at the end and the uh, and the the fake uh, magic or the you know the CG magic that was unnecessary. I, I'm sure that uh, you'll have a great time watching it. I I think so, and and uh, it's a good it's a good uh, period film. Uh, also, if you can get past the awkward vignetting, so <laughs> it's got some thorns. <laughs> it does. Uh, every rose has its thorn. <laughs> there you go. That's good. Carried carried by butterflies. That's right. Uh, where are we going from here? So we're doing our crossover. That's uh, this weekend. This weekend is our crossover, our magician heist film, Now You mm -hmm. See Me. And then next week, we're jumping to uh, another 2006 heist film, Woody oh. Allen's <laughs> Scoop. Which is ironically uh, inclusive of two other uh, stars from The Prestige. Right. Hugh Jackman and Scarlett Johansson. Not only did Hollywood come at us with three stage magic movies in 2006, two of the three of them include two of the same stars. Yeah, crazy. And neither of us have seen it, so it'll be interesting right. to watch it and see uh, what we report. I am. I'm but we felt because of it, it almost was an obligation to do this film because of the uh, the tie-in to the 2006 Magician series. I I can't believe I I honestly I had never even heard of this film. This came and went so fast. And I I actually uh, I think I like Woody Allen more than you do. Right? I I I'm an on and off Woody Allen guy. Yeah. I I'm actually I I consider myself a fan of Woody Allen, and uh, I still I had never heard of this film it just yeah. was there and i maybe it never came to my city it uh, definitely slipped under the rug for me absolutely so i'm really looking forward to seeing it and adding it to the collection and uh, so it's so we're going to roll the dice on this one yeah it'll be an interesting conversation yeah. well let's flick chart the illusionist before let's we do it away. all right the illusionist or the sandlot hmm i'm gonna say the sandlot i am too hercules und wunderkind <laughs> <laughs> I'll just never get over that. The Illusionist or Clute? Um, interesting I, choice. I am going to go with The Illusionist. I think it's uh, yeah. Clute is a dark film, and uh, it's a it's a a 
a more dated film, I think. And I yeah. think I would enjoy watching The Illusionist more, even with its thorns. Yeah, yeah, I agree. The Illusionist or The Dark Knight Rises? I'm totally going to The Illusionist. <laughs> the Illusionist? <laughs> totally. I'm going to say The Illusionist only because I'm so tired of arguing with you about that. <laughs> this will be our final reckoning. <laughs> you do that really well. <laughs> <laughs> the Illusionist or 28 Days Later? 28 Days Later. Totally. All right, number 51. And where did Prestige come up on our list? That was like 38? 28? Oh, somewhere in there? Wasn't me, it better than that? You're going to make me dig. Hold on, hold on. Uh, number 14. Actually. Oh, yeah. I know. We like that a lot. It was up to, <laughs> yeah, we did like that one quite a bit. We're cruising up to the golden 100. Yes, we are. Every it, week. It's it sooner than we think. Awesome. Hey, uh, good chat. Absolutely. Um, the last thing I have to say is get her done. You're done. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>